Hello, and thanks for tuning into my podcast today. Welcome to today's book review on Unknown Friends. This is episode 24 you're listening to this week. If you enjoy my podcast, I hope you take a moment to subscribe and rate Unknown Friends to let others know that you enjoy it and it's worth listening to. So thank you in advance. I have a quick announcement regarding my plays. I have vaguely mentioned this on the podcast, but without any details so far. But if you follow me on Facebook or Instagram or follow my blog, then you already know that I have very recently finished writing a new play. It's a yearly project of mine to write a new Christmas drama for my church to perform each December. We have just an amazing team, the most awesome group of teens and 20-somethings who make up the cast, and then a, a whole crew of church members who jump in and help build sets and collect props and make costumes and just innumerable things that are necessary for a drama performance. So I just finished this year's new Christmas play, and uh, yesterday, actually, October 6th, the cast had our first read-through of the script, and we're starting official rehearsals now. So now that it's officially underway, I can at long last reveal a little bit more information about this drama. I'm not going to go into details on the podcast because that's not what this is for, but over the next several weeks, I will be periodically posting on my blog about the play's setting and characters and what the story's about. The only thing I'll say here is the title. So my new Christmas drama that will be performed and live-streamed on Facebook this December is called As Ever, Sam. And you'll just have to follow my blog or my social media to learn what's behind that title. All right, so thank you for indulging me in that personal moment. It's just a thrilling time for me each year when I get to participate in the bringing to life of words I wrote on paper. It's just mind-blowing. So thank you for sharing my excitement. Okay, now what you came here for, a book review. Today's book is Charles Dickens's novel, Little Dorrit, as promised last week. This is a wonderful book. It is long. I listened to it as an audiobook, and I believe it was about 40 hours long, so pretty hefty. Uh, to compare it to his other works, Little Dorrit is roughly the same length as Our Mutual Friend or Bleak House, but it's almost twice as long as Great Expectations, and it's two and a half times as long as A Tale of Two Cities, uh, which is one of Dickens's shortest novels. So, as you can imagine, Little Dorrit is one of Dickens's famously complex stories with many, many characters whose lives intertwine and numerous subplots, and he loves tracing and untangling all the threads of the story over time and then finally tying them into a neat bow at the end. Now, I have a moral of the story to share with you today, not the moral of Little Dorrit. Well, actually, I assume I'll discuss that as well. But I have a moral of 
the story of me reading Little Dorrit. So what I mean is this. I, unfortunately, violated one of my personal principles and watched the film version of Little Dorrit before I read the book. So I watched the 2008 BBC miniseries. This is not a good idea to do the things in this order. Don't try this at home, kids. Always read the book first. That is the moral of my story. Even if the movie version is really well done and faithful to the book, it still messes you up to watch it first and then read the book. So learn from my mistakes. The thing is, because the BBC miniseries of Little Dorrit is an excellent adaptation and it sticks very close to the book, because of that, there were no surprises as I was reading. Um, the miniseries really didn't leave anything out, which is great, um, but that meant that I always knew exactly what to expect each step throughout the novel. Uh, which I guess a tiny advantage of that is that you can look a little deeper to observe what's going on under the surface of the story if you already know the basics of who's who and what's happening. But the problem is you lose some of the magic of Dickens' storytelling if you go into his work already enlightened already knowing his secrets and where he'll be taking the story. It just robs you of some of the joy of discovery as you read his work. So I, I'm not criticizing the TV miniseries at all. It's awesome. But watch it after you read Little Dorrit. That's my advice. Take it or leave it. Except please don't leave it. <laughs> now, I kind of feel like I'm already getting out of order because I haven't mentioned anything yet in this episode about Dickens himself and his life, which is what I usually start with. But of course, way back in episode four, when I reviewed his novel, The Pickwick Papers, I talked a lot about his life, um, at least about his childhood and the start of his novel writing career in great detail. So I don't have much to add today. Um, just to remind you, his dates are 1812 to 1870. He was essentially the author of the British people during that time. His writing was popular with everyone, just from every walk of life and social class. He wrote a total of 14 completed novels, along with almost countless shorter works, novellas and travel books and short uh, sketches and essays. He was eccentric and brilliant and stubborn and idealistic. Now, a sad fact about Dickens is that his marriage did not work out. He didn't stand by it. We really don't know the details of what happened, but in 1857, reportedly he fell in love with a very young woman when he was in his 40s, after having been married to his wife Catherine for just over 20 years. And he said he'd seen their rupture coming for some time, but it was after he met this young woman, Ellen Turnan, that he actually took the step and he and his wife separated. Uh, not divorced, as that would have been incredibly scandalous at the time, especially considering that he was uh, truly an international celebrity. But they did separate, and for the last dozen years or so of his life, we don't know, again, any details, um, but he was certainly at least in communication with Ellen Turnan. 
When he died in 1870, after a couple of strokes, his will provided for both his wife and Ellen Ternan. I'm, of course, not saying Mrs. Dickens was by any means perfect, but I am um, heartily ashamed of Charles Dickens that he left her. And here's the thing, if you read his works, I think especially those before his separation, but the later ones as well, he highly praises the virtue of faithfulness uh, or constancy. In in Bleak House, for instance, written just a few years before he met Ellen Ternan, it's a major point he's trying to make that people must be steadfast, even when they don't feel like it, in their relationships, in their work, in everything. So I just think it's it's truly tragic that he wasn't able to live up to his own ideals in that way. Anyway, I bring that up not only to give you a fuller picture of Dickens's life, but also to mention that Little Dorrit is the last novel he wrote before he left his wife. So Little Dorrit was published in monthly installments, like most of his novels, beginning in December 1855 and ending in June 1857. Now, Unlike with the Pickwick Papers, which we discussed in episode four, by the time of Little Dorrit, Dickens actually knew what he was doing. This was his 11th full-length novel published serially, and so he was much better at planning ahead and creating um, a cohesive story from beginning to end. He had learned how to plant seeds early on that he could um, cultivate throughout the story, and then bring to fruition later on. I still think it's just a marvel how any writer, even an experienced one, can publish his chapters one by one as he writes them and maintain coherence and a linear plot structure throughout the novel without being able to change his mind later about things, at least not big things, that he set in motion at the beginning. At any rate, Dickens does it, and does it incredibly well. So Little Dorrit is about two main characters, Arthur Clennam and, you guessed it, Little Dorrit, or more properly, Miss Amy Dorrit. Now, imprisonment and debt are key topics or themes in this novel, and Not a small portion of the story takes place in a debtor's prison, the Marshalsea in London. So Amy Dorrit lives with her aging father, Mr. William Dorrit, in the Marshalsea. And in fact, Amy was born there shortly after her father had first been imprisoned for debt. Amy has two older siblings, a sister, Fanny, and brother, Edward, but they both live uh, most of the time outside of the debtor's prison and are able uh, more or less to earn their living or be supported in some way. Amy, while not technically a prisoner and free to come and go from the Marshalsea, which she does in order to earn some income outside, but she chooses to still live with her father so that she can take care of him. Now, on the other side of the story, we have Arthur Clennam, our hero, who has lived abroad in China for the past 20 years, working in the family business with his father. 
But his father has just passed away, and so Arthur returns home at the beginning of the book to reunite with his mother and help her run the business in England. His mother, however, is difficult, and the two soon become estranged, and so Arthur leaves the business. So we have these two characters from very different situations, both trying to make their way in the world, and they soon encounter each other and do their best to help one another as they can. Now, meanwhile, a multitude of other characters get involved, and they all have their own problems or goals, which variously help hinder or otherwise interact with Arthur Clennam and little Amy Dorrit's lives. So you have uh, Mr. Panks, who is an utterly Dickensian character. He's fantastic. Um, as is Flora Finching and her irascible old aunt. Uh, and Edmund Sparkler, who possesses about two total concepts in his head, which come out of his mouth by turns throughout his day-to-day life. Um, and he falls in love with Amy's sister, Fanny, who herself is just an intriguing character to me. She's somewhat caricatured, but in truth, I think she's almost disturbingly realistic. She's very dramatic and self-centered and always makes herself out to be the victim in any situation. And yet she does have sort of flashes of repentance and even tenderness once in a while toward her selfless, patient sister, Amy. Um, So Fanny alone would make, I think, a fascinating character study. At any rate, all these characters and their circumstances get mixed together in a labyrinth of a plot involving blackmail and suicide, many reversals of fortune, proposals and weddings and unhappy marriages, tragedy and comedy and drama. Now, as far as the themes or issues Dickens wants to consider in this book, I think a couple uh, social or economic issues come to the forefront right away. So he's clearly presenting certain problems that he sees with the debtor's prison institution. Um, And throughout his life, he advocated for reforming the system. Interestingly, Dickens' own father, who was not the best at handling money, was imprisoned in the Marshalsea debtor's prison when Charles Dickens was just a boy. And so he then had to go and work at a blacking factory as a result at age 12, which was just a horrible experience that uh, affected him for years afterward. So his objection to the way debtor's prisons are run is very personal. And then another issue he's tackling in Little Dorrit is, um, I suppose you could say, the inefficiency of bureaucracy. So he creates this fictional governmental department in Little Dorrit called the Circumlocution Office, which is just perfect, of course. Um, Circumlocution meaning basically roundaboutness or redundancy, vagueness. So this government office represents uh, disorganization and uselessness. And With this, Dickens in some ways is satirizing all of government here, just the red tape and waste that so often characterizes the workings of 
government departments. But on a more personal level, what is he getting at? What themes does he want to communicate? The obvious place to look is the character of Little Dorrit herself, who gets the book named after her. She is a wonderful young woman with extraordinary resilience and endurance, who is committed to caring endlessly without complaint or reserve for those she loves, um, even when they don't treat her with anything like the same spirit of service and patience. I already mentioned that she cares for her father in prison. She tends to all his needs, both uh, practically and relationally. So she provides for him, cooks for him, cleans for him, but she also listens to him and talks with him and protects him as much as she can from people or ideas that might hurt him. But not only him, we see character after character whom her life and her sacrifices impact in meaningful ways. So Arthur Clennam, first of all, who is impressed and inspired by her to be a better person himself, more forbearing and forgiving. And then Amy's siblings benefit greatly from her actions and her attitude, um, as well as her uncle and the people she works for, the people she befriends. It's, it's truly um, untraceable the extent to which her life affects and improves the lives of others. Now, one slight caveat. I have to admit, I find her selflessness once in a while, I think, lacking in wisdom. So I understand that Dickens really wanted to emphasize the fact that she is a victim in some ways. She's certainly not treated as she deserves, but she chooses not to view herself as a victim. She chooses to love unconditionally in spite of it. And this is in direct contrast to her sister Fanny, her father, um, and several other characters who, in their different ways, choose to think of themselves as victims, whether they are or aren't in reality. And some of them wallow in it, others use it as an excuse for treating other people badly. So I know and I value what Dickens is doing here with this contrast. But as a guide for life, I have slight reservations about this. Mainly, my question is, does Little Dorrit, in her utter selflessness, pretty much always just um, obliging her father and protecting him from being hurt, does she shield him too much from truth? I just have to ask whether it might not do Mr. Dorrit more good occasionally if... I hate to say it, but if his daughter allowed him on certain occasions to feel the negative effects of his folly, the consequences of his choices. I don't know, I'm I'm not making any strong statements here, but it's food for thought for me and for anyone who might have read or might want to read Little Dorrit. Did Dickens strike the right balance? Is Amy Dorrit so much the patient uh, obedient victim, that she unknowingly actually enables 
her father, and perhaps others, to continue in an existence that truly harms both them and those around them? Just a question. I find it interesting to mentally compare and contrast Amy Dorrit with Esther Summerson from Bleak House, which is, I think I would say, my favorite Dickens novel. It's been a few years since I read it, so it's not fresh on my mind. But if I'm not mistaken, Esther has a similar servant heart and a dedication to care for those she loves. But I think she has a little more insight into the workings of the human heart and the fact that selfishness sometimes needs to be contradicted rather than accommodated. At any rate, none of this is to condemn Little Dorrit. On the contrary, I appreciate Dickens's portrayal of a young woman who is strong enough to patiently endure suffering and love even when she gets absolutely nothing in return. That is beautiful um, and worth imitating. So this book has lots it can teach us and truths it reminds us of, um, things that, in my opinion, definitely make it worth reading. I don't think it would be my top suggestion for a first-time Dickens reader. I kind of discussed that back when I reviewed the Pickwick Papers, So if you're new to Dickens, I think I'd recommend starting with something shorter, like um, A Christmas Carol or maybe Great Expectations, or perhaps the novel that was Dickens' personal favorite of his works, um, which is David Copperfield. But if you really want to go for it, Little Dorrit I don't think is the worst place to start with Dickens, and it's certainly a great read for Dickens connoisseurs who are already familiar with his work. And for the record, I do actually recommend the 2008 miniseries of Little Dorrit as well. The screenplay was written by Andrew Davies, who's the same guy who did the Sense and Sensibility version that I love, as well as some of my other favorite classic novel adaptations. And honestly, there's only one conversation in the whole Little Dorrit miniseries that I don't like because it isn't in the book and slightly misrepresents the characters. But really, that's the only thing I remember being dissatisfied with in the BBC adaptation. And funny story, when I did watch it for the first time, before reading Little Dorrit, this one um, out-of-place conversation I mentioned stood out to me. And I was like, that does not seem to fit with how the characters have been developed in the rest of the story. I would put money, uh, if I were a gambler, on that not being in the original. And lo and behold, it is not there. There's nothing even slightly like it in the book. So anyway, watch the miniseries if you're interested, but read the book first. So that's it for Little Dorrit today. I will just close with a quick look ahead to next week. We'll be transitioning, perhaps jarringly, from the 19th century to the 21st, and from one of the longest books I've reviewed so far to one of the shortest. I'll be discussing a charming little book by Kate DiCamillo titled The Magician's Elephant. This is categorized as a children's book, but if you've read any of DiCamillo's works or really any good children's literature, then you know such books hold a wealth of wisdom and enjoyment for adults as well. 
So I look forward to sharing with you my review of the delightful work The Magician's Elephant a week from today in episode 25 next Wednesday. In the meantime, please remember to rate and review my podcast if you have a moment, and thank you so much. I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>